We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I'm back here with Luke today for a special episode. Luke, say hello to the good people. Hello, good people. Uh, Luke, of course, is our Producia Discordia. Is that right, Luke? Is that what we decided? I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) Both runs the Discord and produces for us. Particularly Luke's uh, latest project has been uh, connecting us with like-minded podcasters out there whose work we enjoy. Today, uh, I am joined by the team, the two-person team from Psychology After Dark. That's Psychology after dark. Uh, we've got Jessica McConnell and David Morelos. Welcome, Jessica and David. Oh, thanks so much for having us, Rob. Yeah, looking forward to the interview for sure. I should say, Dr. David, Dr. Jessica, Luke, this is the most doctors we've crammed into a podcast yet on a call confessions. <laughs> I know. I feel, I feel very left out. I'm slowly chugging through a master's, but doctors is still a ways away. Maybe you can be an honorary doctor just for this episode. There you go. Oh, you're far too kind. <laughs> Don't get used to it. You'll, we'll only call you a doctor for 90 minutes, Luke. <laughs> all right. So I love all the topics you guys uh, cover. You know, I'm, of course, particularly interested in some of the work you guys have been doing on parapsychology. But but before we get into that, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourselves. I mean, my audience is, is maybe some of them are meeting you for the first time. What is your professional life like? And uh, what is your podcast like? David, would you like to start? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my name is David Morelos. Uh, I am currently working as a drug treatment specialist uh, inside of a federal prison, a low security federal prison right outside of Denver, Colorado. I've been in the field of corrections now for about 18 years. Uh, I started out as an officer and that's sort of where I've built my career. And it was during that time that I continued my education. I finished a master's degree in social science and then I became really interested in a field of psychology that I first encountered uh, when I was studying for my bachelor's degree. I talk a lot about this um, on the podcast about going to uh, a, a very eccentric little school, liberal arts school in Boulder, Colorado, called uh, at the time it was called the Naropa Institute. And now it's Naropa University, but it's a very... Um, uh, it's a Buddhist-oriented, very experiential-type learning. And uh, I became exposed to something called transpersonal psychology, and I have been hooked on it ever since. And so after I finished my master's, I looked for a, uh, a couple places that um, where I could study uh, on the PhD level and do that kind of research in transpersonal psychology, the movement of which is based around the Bay Area out in Northern California. And I settled on a place called Sophia, Sophia University. And uh, I've been just hooked on it ever since. I tried to really bring, as best as I can, you know, without getting too far ahead of the the men I work with in the federal prison in terms of their treatment. But like I tried to bring a lot of uh, what I know in terms of transpersonal concepts and uh, Jungian psychology and stuff like that to the treatment that I do. But that's basically uh, yeah, where I'm from. So, David, your PhD is specifically in transpersonal psychology. Correct. And could you just give us a quick thumbnail definition of what would be transpersonal about psychology? Yeah. So, and you know, what's funny is that that's kind of one of the one of the issues in transpersonal psychology is that there's never been a really uh, agreed upon definition of exactly what it is <laughs> yeah these, <laughs> you know, these fields yeah yeah <laughs> i hear you and, and, and you know the transpersonalists wrangle about it all the time but essentially the way i describe it is that the trans just means to go beyond and then personal to go beyond the self and so it really focuses in on the experiential aspects of when we sort of go beyond our ego persona And these experiences that are absolutely part of the human experience, but are usually kind of pushed to the side by contemporary psychology. And so, and those would be a lot of the topics that we have discussed um, on the podcast and that, you know, we're going to talk about today in parapsychology. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I see the Buddhist angle there too, in, in getting outside of the ego. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's definitely a lot of um, the transpersonalists and the human potential movement of the 1960s and the new ageism and stuff like that was really sort of 
tried to bring in that east uh, meets west sort of flavor and it's sort of we've been watching the sparks fly ever since <laughs> you know yeah absolutely that's uh, they're speaking our language there <laughs> <laughs> jessica how about you well going after that it's going to sound so boring my goodness but you know i'm i'm very much mainstream psychology i went to um uh, University of New Mexico, where they've done a lot of addictions research. Um, and uh, for graduate school, I did all of my graduate work at the University of Denver here in Colorado. And my specialty areas are in uh, forensic psychology and forensic assessment. And so I also work at the federal prison. David and I always like to tell people that we met in prison. <laughs> that the sweetest love story. There's nothing oh. more romantic. <laughs> Right? Like all good romances start with, and we met in prison. So um, I, I've been working with uh, people that that are involved with the criminal justice system for over half of my life. Um, and I've been at the federal prison for just over 10 years. And my main job there is doing criminal evaluations for the U.S. District Courts. So um, things like competency to stand trial um, or insanity evaluations. And, you know, I'm very fortunate because I'm one of the few people that gets to say I have my dream job, that this is really something that I've wanted to do since I was 12 years old and I get to do it every day. So um, it is in prison. There are some drawbacks to that, but in general, it's, it's really interesting work. And, you know, David and I really do come from very different kind of theoretical orientations and, and how we view psychology. Uh, but we're both absolutely in love with the field. And when we talk about it, we can really kind of explore different things. And, and he brings things to my awareness and educates me about aspects of the transpersonal that I never learned in school. And I think that I, I kind of bring that more traditional mainstream psychology view. And uh, we were really interested, we're really into podcasts, of course, and we love a lot of like the true crime stuff, stuff on the paranormal. But for us, you know, we would be listening to these episodes and then have this whole discussion about, you know, well, what about the psychology behind this? And we thought, well, if we like to think about these things, um, maybe other people would as well. And so in 2019, we started our podcast, Psychology After Dark. And the whole premise is that we choose, you know, some of these darker cases, these darker ideas from the human experience. And we talk about the psychology behind them from both of our perspectives. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun. It's it's definitely a labor of love, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, it's a lot of work, but I, I feel like it's so rewarding. Absolutely. It's a passion project, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to say thank you to you both. Um, I have had the uh, good fortune to be able to work from home as a college professor for the year, uh, but I know that the prison system is one of the most dangerous places to work uh, on, a, on a good day, but uh, especially uh, during time of COVID. So thank you both for, for the work you do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's been challenging. Um, it's been really challenging for the inmates, and I think that they've handled it exceptionally well. Um, but it's been a long year and a half. Yeah, and it's not over. Oof. No, it's not. No, and yeah, we're we're constantly reevaluating protocols in the prison in terms of you know COVID and the reemergence of the you know the Delta variant and all kinds of stuff. However, I will say there are definitely times when sitting in prison and looking out, you think that everybody on the outside might be a little crazier <laughs> than what's going on inside a prison you know, with the last year and a half that everybody's had. Uh, yeah. I mean, while we're on the subject, I was going to save this for the end, but you know, as long as we're talking about it, what do you think about the mental health of the country right now? I mean, we have the opportunity to talk to two folks, two psychologists. What, how are we doing? It's my impression as a college professor, we're, I'm going back to the classroom now, that some of my students are pretty strung out on the edge. Oh yeah. Uh, how are we doing as a, as a nation here? Do you want to go ahead, Jessica? Sure. You, you know, I think that 
it's kind of one of the un- overlooked areas of the pandemic, just what this has, the toll that it's taken on people's mental health. Um, I know that we've we've gotten some early statistics showing even higher incidences of suicide attempts, um, addictions, uh, domestic violence, behavior, child abuse. And so I, you know, I think that all of these things have been exacerbated just by the amount of stress and uncertainty that people are experiencing, the lack of social connection, um, the lack of being able to see providers in person. You know, I think a lot of people are, are getting back to that now, but for a long time, you know, talking to a therapist over Zoom, it's just not the same experience. Um, so, so I think it's been very challenging for a lot of people. And like you said, Rob, it's not over yet. Um, I think that we had kind of this glimmer of hope. And then now we're kind of going backwards a little bit. And I wonder how that impacts people as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that a lot of the normal coping mechanisms that people have uh, in the day to day, I mean, pretty much all of them have been disrupted in some way, shape or form. I know for us, one of the things that we really love to do is we love to travel. And that completely got disrupted, you know, in the last year and a half. And you feel it after a while. It, it, it definitely wears on you. And I think that right now, um, it seems the way I would describe the, the, the prison where we work, working with the inmates, it's definitely a little bit, uh, yeah, uh, hotter. I don't know how else to say it. It just seems like people are, are uh, much more short-tempered. Um, they, they're just people been snapping at each other. There's been a lot more conflict, uh, you know, more than usual as this, uh, inability to use our normal coping strategies and coping mechanisms, um, wears on us. That's how I felt at in-service last week. So I sympathize. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I can agree too on the Zoom. I think it's the same with teaching. We've done it online, but it is absolutely not the same experience. Luke, you you teach in the secondary schools. How how would you feel about the Zoom experience? I'm not a fan. I, (laughs) I teach in middle school and it makes me wonder, especially for, you know, middle school students, they're between 11 and 13. So they're in very key developmental points in their life, do you think there's any kind of, you know, deficit that they might be experiencing having a year online that could impact their social kind of development? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, like you said, that that time period, friends and peers are just so important. It's, you know, it's important to be in the school environment to learn all of the, the social skills, but also there's something about learning that for me, because I, I also teach at a university here in Denver, and it just wasn't the same. There's just something missing um, when you're not in the same room with people. And, you know, I, I guess that, that it's to be seen the true impact of this past year doing everything virtually. But, you know, I, I would imagine that, that kids are going to have to catch up, you know, at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of that now, especially preparing for next year. And halfway through last year, when we brought students back, it was as if the entire period of time where they were online, nothing really happened, unfortunately. Yeah. They didn't quite learn. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's talk about something more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me wind into this a little bit. And I didn't put this in the questions exactly, but uh, I just want to get each of your takes on this sort of broad question. What are the fringes of psychology today? What is considered fringe? David, I know that you you were kind of thinking more about because he kept asking me like, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "I'm so I'm so in the middle of the mainstream. It's almost difficult for me to to see like what the fringes are, you know." And I think David's a lot more in touch with that. Um, I appreciate the vote of confidence in that regard. <laughs> I mean, um, not in a good way that you're in touch with the fringes, you know. No, <laughs> I, I know you meant it in the best way. Um. You know, I think that's a great question. And so I thought about that that question for a while. I, you know, and for me, I would have to say that the fringes of sort of psychological research lies in consciousness and consciousness studies. Um, people who listen to our podcast know that I cite the work of uh, a contemporary philosopher by the name of Ken Wilber a great deal when um, 
discussing ideas, as I think his work and a number of others have done a tremendous amount of work to really bring the riddle of consciousness into mainstream and the importance of consciousness studies into contemporary psychological research. So what interests me the most regarding consciousness studies is the interface between consciousness and matter. So this is why the idea of the soul um, has been so resilient throughout time. You know, our consciousness, and there are millions of examples of this, seems to be able to transcend our material bodies and yet is also able to be seamlessly integrated with them. We know that when we take a drug like DMT, you know, people have some extraordinary experiences, but we literally have no idea how a chemical translates into an internal experience. And so one of Wilbur's strongest arguments for the existence of spirit, in my opinion, is that science and psychology has never been able to identify where the interface between matter and consciousness really lies. So therefore, how can a chemical suddenly invoke an incredibly profound internal experience in someone who comes back from that experience to describe communing with beings from different dimensions of time and space. So for me, there's simply no rational answer to this question, at least not yet. There is no place where we can point and to and say, you know, this is where consciousness and the body meet. So for me, exploring just what makes us conscious, but not just what makes us conscious, but why we are conscious continues to be the most fringe psychological research being done. And I use the word fringe as a good thing. This is the new frontier of psychology, I think, as more and more people are waking up to some pretty profound existential truths out there. And a lot of the old answers, those answers that seem to lack depth and meaning are being rejected. So for psychology to continue to move forward, I think we really need to continue to push out into those fringes. And as long as it's part of the human experience. I, I really believe it will. All of my listeners who were thinking, Rob, why do you have a couple of prison psychologists on the show are now saying, <laughs> ah, of course. <laughs> uh, this is one of our favorite topics. And as a philosopher, uh, you know, I take a certain stance on it. Uh, I, I agree with everything you've said, David. Uh, but what fascinates me, because this is not a problem I ever think about when you know contemplating the intersection of matter and, and consciousness and where consciousness lies, is that it has practical applications in mental health. Could, could you speak to that a little bit? Huh, yeah. Um... I have to let me think about that one. Do you have something, Jessica? <laughs> yeah, let me think about that well, one know, for a second. Absolutely. Okay, so as we're talking about the fringes, you know, some things that came to mind. We're uh, currently working on an episode on precognition, and you know, these ideas of psi, you know, telepathy, telekinesis, near-death experiences, um, clairvoyance, all of this, and you know, generally those have been in the domain of parapsychology, which we're going to be talking more about later in the episode, but um, there, there are still research studies being done into some of these areas. And I feel like even though psychologists tend to be a very skeptical bunch, there are some who are kind of um, daring to look at some of these issues. And there have been some really interesting findings that have come about. And so, you know, I kind of see that as maybe one of those fringe areas Um Super interesting and still not totally accepted, but I think maybe there's a place in the future where people will look more seriously or, or at least be willing to consider some of the evidence from these studies, you know, moving forward. So I, I think that maybe is a little bit related to consciousness, but it's also it's it's a little different, you know. So you mean like something like using this sort of like uh, well, we talk about the random number generator, being able to tap into the random number generator of the mind as a way to problem solve. Right. So there's been um, those studies, uh, some of the more recent, some of the studies that I've looked at recently, they, they're they from like 2011, 2015, are looking at this whole idea of the reversal of time, basically. Um, and it's something that's been demonstrated on the quantum level, but they're finding some evidence in human behavior as well. And um, I just think that that is really fascinating stuff. Now, it's not to the point where we can prove that people have psychic abilities or, or can prove that they have premonitions, but there are some interesting studies that are suggesting that what happens in the future 
can impact what we're doing in the present, which just like that blows my mind. And that's so far out of the realm of like anything that I learned in school or anything really that has to do with my day-to-day work, but yet still fascinating and has incredible implications, I think, just as human beings, you know? Well, when in class, and I think on the show, Luke, I've, I've mentioned this, we talk about a study where um, a pornographic image was hidden behind two screens. And because of the emotional content of a pornographic image, it, it uh, inspired a stronger uh, correct guess response in yeah. people. Fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, BEM, I think the, is the name. BEM studies from yeah. Cornell. Yeah, right, absolutely. Right. Similar to that. Uh, your recent episode on Project Stargate kind of touched into that as well. Didn't they have a success rate in identifying around like 65% or so? Right. And that was what some of the proponents of the study reported. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about this idea that we would need more information to to tell if that was really statistically significant. But it is certainly possible that people were kind of hitting or making correct choices or correct observations at a greater than chance level. And that, again, that would be pretty amazing if somebody was able to do that or could hone those skills. I'm going to give you an opening here, David. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what'd you come up with? (laughs) You know, I I was, I, I was thinking about it and it's, and it's, I don't know, I guess I don't know how I would, um, you know, qualify, you know, practical, like what, what a practical application would be. I know that again, in my opinion, it's, it's probably one of, if not the most profound sort of riddle that we face, you know, as part of our existence is, is sort of acknowledging and really um, studying, you know, what makes us conscious human beings and how this sort of works. Um, to me, it seems like it, there, I can't imagine uh, a a you know a corner of psychology that wouldn't be touched by that you know with with more information on how consciousness works. Um, you know, it's funny because in technology you see and you hear a lot of conversations about AI and you know um, artificial intelligence and it becoming more and more human like and then you know becoming self aware and stuff like that. And we've had, you know, numerous science fiction movies that go into that, like, you know, like Terminator and stuff. What happens when technology becomes self-aware or the Matrix or whatever? But we don't even know how it really works in us yet. And that's what I find so interesting. It's like we have these conversations about technology and stuff going into these outer realms. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, we really should figure out how it works in us first, I would think. And then... I can't even imagine what that would do to the field of contemporary psychology to really sort of understand those types of concepts. So you you view it as a kind of existential shift in the way psychologists approach what they do? I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. I know that just the, to me, you know, what, what really brought me into transpersonal psychology was the attempt to do that, was to sort of really, let's look at you know, what happens when we stop emphasizing, we don't, you know, stop the practice of the scientific method, but when we stop emphasizing it so much and start looking at the real internal experience and developing expert cultures based on that and looking at that as, you know, this is a form of truth as well, rather than, you know, well, this has to be replicated, you know, in controlled settings and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, but we have millions of people that have all described the exact same experience or at least an experience that has a number of the same basic points, you know, when can we start to really give that the same kind of weight? Mm -hmm. Let's toggle into parapsychology a little bit, shall we? Sure. So uh, our listeners uh, are familiar with sort of my version of history on this, I think, if if they've listened to the whole (laughs) series, which is, you know, basically that in the 19th century, mesmerism at its root, you know, contained the seeds of academic psychology as we understand it, uh, but also the seeds of much of 20th century occultism. So there was this moment where the two had to separate from each other in order to go off and do their own business. And so psychology, in order to be accepted as a science, really had to put some space between itself 
and parapsychology. That narrative, though, has some hinks because as we get into the 40s, Duke University, J.B. Rhine, there are parapsychologists operating in departments of psychology. Uh, so what I want to do as we start into this is to get your take on wh- what happened. <laughs> why, why, why does parapsychology and psychology have uh, a break? Why, why is there not this happy marriage between the two going back to 1900 or however far you want to take it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think that there has always been a push by those in the field of psychology to make it more of a so-called hard science. That is where things can be observed, measured, replicated, and where empirical evidence can be used to prove or disprove ideas, you know, that sort of thing. In many ways, this segment of the field of psychology is still alive and well, and there is a continual drive to find, you know, more scientific understandings of why people act and think the way that they do. I think that this has always been the case and will probably continue into the foreseeable future. And there's definitely a place in psychology for that kind of approach. The problem with parapsychology and it being labeled a pseudoscience is that generally researchers have a really difficult time proving, and I put quotes around that word, you know, anything in the scientific sense. I look at places like the Rhine Research Center and their studies on parapsychology, you know, and this facility was for a while affiliated with Duke University. And even with a large and well-funded university behind it, however, the results of the research tended to be underwhelming. And that's not to say that they haven't done some very good work there, but I'm sure if there was someone who could seriously manipulate the physical world, you know, using just their mind or could actually really predict the future, we would have probably have heard about them because it would have been so groundbreaking. So, you know, in the 1960s, Uh, With the human potential movement and new ageism, there seemed to be a backlash of sorts against the strict scientifically driven methods used to research parapsychology. In other words, parapsychology has in the past been examined in very classically scientifically research oriented ways, experiments, quantitative research, measurements of observable phenomena and the like. During the 1960s, however, a number of researchers started to question the supremacy of this kind of approach. And so getting back to the DMT uh, example, this is just sort of an example of what I'm talking about. And so for anybody, any of the listeners who have watched the documentary uh, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which came out in 2010, um, or those who even may have read the, the book that was published by Dr. Rick Strassman in 2000, who conducted research on psychedelics at the University of New Mexico between 1990 and 1995, he revealed some interesting information about how he had to go about getting his research approved. When designing the research study on DMT, it was suggested that he focus on the basic physiological measurables of people under the influence of dimethyltryptamine. And by focusing the official study on these observable and measurable data points, he was able to actually get the study approved. But what he and the other researchers were really after was the experience of those who took the DMT. That is the stories of each of the research participants and what, and how they contextualize that in their lives. So in this way, Dr. Strassman had to couch, so to speak, this very profound research study as being a scientific one in order for it to be accepted by the academic powers that be, when what the researchers were truly interested in were the lived experiences of the participants and how each of the participants contextualized what they saw when they were on the drug. So it seems that beginning in the 1960s somewhere, researchers started to acknowledge the unique truth truths that could be learned by really engaging the internal and subjective experiences of people rather than, you know, just what we can observe and measure as someone looking in from the outside. So in order to do this, we have to speak to people and actually listen to them and give credence to what they tell us, you know, whether we can scientifically verify their experiences or not. So this, in my opinion, is the problem with parapsychology and why it's been pushed sort of to the fringes of psychology. The emphasis has been on proving or disproving from a scientific viewpoint. And yet the field of parapsychology refuses to die because the internal experience of so many people, whether it be with precognition or apparitions or out-of-body experiences or other phenomena, remains such a strong part of our collective human experience, whether we can scientifically prove it or not. So for many who have these experiences, it is very real, regardless of what the fMRI machine says of it, you know, or if it can be replicated in a controlled setting. So as we move further into exploring and honoring the subjective reality of being human, I think we'll see things like parapsychology move further into the mainstream. 
That's interesting. It's sort of like a return to the early days. I mean, F.W.H. Myers and um, uh, Miller; these sort of folks were very interested in experience. But then, you know, moving into the Rhine days, it was these. You know, we need thousands of subjects and to produce these, you know, huge data sets in order to. to but as you say, uh, David, the, the result is often fifty-one percent or fifty-two percent, uh, <laughs> which you know, statistically, I guess, is impressive. But you really need a lot of uh, persuasion in in class. When I say this to students, they're like, "Oh, that doesn't sound like a lot." And I'm like, "No, yeah, but the statistics, it's you know, kind of." It's just not an impressive story compared to these individual experiences, which is what Myers was focusing on. But now you're seeing a swing back in that direction, but now through the lens of psilocybin or LSD and, and that sort of research. Yeah, I would say so. I would say that. I mean, the the internal experience of you know, um, uh, yeah, psilocybin or the internal experience of a dimethyltryptamine, it, it's. So many people come back from these experiences with a very profoundly changed um, viewpoint, you know, on their lives. And, uh, you know, you see people go through experiences like this and completely change major aspects of their life. And yet, you know, it's sitting from the outside, observing it, we're just sort of left to like to wonder like, OK, well, I mean, obviously they went through something, you know, and to not to not really. Um, honor that I think is folly in the scientific method. And I think that that's the biggest problem. And so I think that as we sort of uh, move away from this emphasis on that kind of research, we'll, we'll start to see a lot more of these experiences being, you know, really explored in terms of what is the psychology of this, because they're going to have, these experiences will continue to have very profound and lasting effects on the psychology of people. Could we talk a bit about treatment then? I mean, what do we do with these experiences that seem to be uh, otherworldly or paranormal or, uh, you know, an LSD or, or psilocybin experience, a DMT experience? How do you deal with that in treatment? Do you, do you have situations where this comes up? Um, I know that there are a number of men that I've worked with that have had profound experiences as part of, you know, sort of waking up and uh, all at once sort of realizing, you know, my life is completely off track, you know, because I deal with a lot of um, substance abuse, but a lot of th other things come up as well in, in that context, including trauma, abuse, you know, things like that. And so it's, something that you definitely have to um, try to not marginalize, um, regardless of what your initial sort of perspective on it may be. Because these are, again, very profound experiences to the individual. And so integrating them can be interesting and it can be something and in integrating them, them and processing them in the last episode that we just did, that Jessica and I just did on Andrea Yates, um, was it the one on Andrea Yates? Talking about spiritual emergence? No, I'm sorry. It was on the uh, it was on our Patreon episode, The Slender Man, about post traumatic growth, mm. is what I was uh, referring to. And it was it was about you know the the growth that comes out of some incredibly um, traumatic experiences, and so integrating those can be an enormous process that for some people can take the rest of their lives. And so what really matters is finding how to best do that. Um, one of the stories that comes to mind in regard to that was the story of uh, the artist, H.R. Geiger. Um, I was at a seminar with uh, a psychiatrist who's one of the grandfathers of transpersonal psychology. His name is Stanislas Groff. And he talked at length about being personal friends with H.R. Geiger, who I'm sure you guys know is the, the designer of mm -hmm. the alien <laughs> from the alien movies. The xenomorph, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, why his artwork was so incredibly creepy. And it had to do with a, a bad LSD experience that he had and how it really brought to the forefront a lot of trauma. And... Um, you know, that's a whole nother subject, the perinatal trauma that he had gone through during the process of being born. 
and which is one of Stanislas Grof's major concepts that he sort of talks about. And that's how Geiger managed it. He continually made this artwork as an expression of him working through and processing through this intense spiritual, you know, experience that he had. And uh, there are also organizations that do this. I have a, a friend who I studied with who does a lot of work with an organization called ASSIST, which is the American Center for the Integration of Spiritual Experiences. And that's what, that's what they specialize in, is really helping people to integrate these experiences you know, in the context of their life journey. Jessica, what's your take on this from a forensic standpoint? I mean, when is somebody having a religious experience or being, you know, spoken to by an angel and, and when are they, you know, being motivated by insanity? This is just such a tricky area. Um, you know, as I kind of briefly mentioned, David and I had talked about, you know, this idea of spiritual emergence versus psychosis um, in in a recent episode that we did. And, you know, when I think about spiritual emergence, these could be things like mystical experiences, right? Hearing an angel speak to them, having an out-of-body experience or some sort of like paranormal phenomenon. And, you know, this is really kind of one of those areas that mainstream psychology is generally shied away from, or, you know, when they've talked about it, it's just kind of referred to as like a culturally and religiously appropriate experience. So, you know, it's like, well, as long as that's okay in the person's culture, then we're not really too concerned about it and we're going to move on. Um, but I think, you know, this is a major contribution of the transpersonal movement is, you know, looking at these in a different way, in a different perspective, and kind of helping us to understand that these experiences exist and that they're not necessarily indicative of a mental illness. So... It, it, but it, it can be very challenging. So we actually talked about some recent research that was conducted at the University of New England by a Dr. Kylie Harris, and she was looking into ways to distinguish between spiritual emergence and psychotic disorders. And what she found was, I, I think, very interesting. She found that the people who were experiencing spiritual emergence generally only endorsed what we call positive symptoms of psychosis. So the positive symptoms represent an excess of normal functioning. So we don't mean positive in the sense like, oh, this is a good symptom or it makes people feel happy. It's more about there just being an excess of a normal function. And so hallucinations and delusions fall into this category. So she found that people with psychotic disorders also endorsed positive symptoms as did the people with the spiritual emergence, but they also experienced negative symptoms of psychosis. And those negative symptoms represent a decrease or a loss of normal function. So some of the negative symptoms of psychosis are things like a flattened emotional expression, lack of spontaneous or, or detailed speech, uh, which is also called alosia, De decreased engagement and goal-directed behavior, which is called abolition. And so in general, she found that those with psychotic disorders had both the positive and negative symptoms, while those who were experiencing spiritual emergence only had those positive symptoms. So for instance, they might come in and say, you know, I commune with the angel Gabriel and he comes to me at night and I hear him and I can see him, but they're not reporting any other negative symptoms. They're, they're having a normal conversation with you. Their, you know, emotional expression is very appropriate to to what you're talking about, and they're not really displaying a lot of disruption in their in their daily life. So, you know, it, it was pretty interesting because this was the first research study that I found where people are actively trying to figure out, okay, what is a good system for us differentiating these spiritual emergence experiences versus, you know, a severe mental health disorder? And, but still, I mean, I think that it's a very, um, difficult thing to, to look at. You know, some of the other areas that clinicians look at are the constellation of experiences. You know, are they interfering with the person's life? Uh, does it 
impact their ability to live independently, to work, to have relationships. And then also looking at the symptoms themselves. Are they causing the person distress? So, you know, I can say in all of my years practicing, I have not come across a person with a psychotic disorder that enjoyed their hallucinatory experiences or that, you know, appeared more peaceful because of a, a delusional thought that they had. So, you know, that that distress piece can be pretty important as well. Yeah. I'm thinking about Joan of Arc here. That, that's what springs to mind. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you were talking about being dis- disrupting their life, certainly Joan of Arc, <laughs> she left the farm and off she went to conquer right. the British. But... I like this, what you're saying about enjoying the experience. I mean, Joan of Arc, certainly uh, the way she talked about her voice, it was always a positive experience for her to engage with them. And, and she found it a very fulfilling and uh, ultimately it was successful for her. So it was disruptive, but it was never unpleasant. Right. And and I think that you can hear that when you, you read, you know, when you look at some of the, the mystics, right, they'll describe their experiences as being ecstasy. Um, and so, again, it's not this disparaging voice that they're just hearing constantly in their in their head. Um, so it, it's difficult. I mean, we have to look at the entire picture. We have to take all of these different pieces into account. We have to look at the person's spiritual beliefs, their religious beliefs, the beliefs of the community that they reside in. Um, you know, one of the things that I'll ask people is, you know, you're telling me all of these, these experiences that you're having. What does your mother or your brother or your daughter think about these experiences? And if even their family members think there's something wrong with them, you know, that can be a good piece of information. I'll also ask them, you know, have you sought help from your religious community or from your spiritual healers? And try to, you know, find out what was the message that you received from them. You know, if they're saying, yes, you're, you, you have a very special gift that you're able to do this, that's very different than that community saying, I don't know what this is, but this isn't what we do, right? And so, so that can be pretty helpful, I think, from a clinical perspective also in differentiating between these types of, of experiences. I want to push on that a little bit, Jessica, because I'm very interested in this question. Sure. This comes up in the questions I sent you all. I, I mean, a, a cult leader or you know, a very persuasive serial killer, I'm thinking about someone like the toy box killer, these folks can persuade their families. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, the first converts really are very close <laughs> to home, you know? Uh, so not, not that I'm calling Jesus a cult leader, my Christian listeners, but... <laughs> I mean, ultimately, sort of. So, uh, you know, but, but we could think about Nexium and, you know, any of the cults that we will, def- you know, cult is a strong word, but mm-hmm. these groups that tend to develop this, you know, they have the, the your inner circle are the ones that are affirming these uh, unhealthy habits or unhealthy beliefs. Mm-hmm. So what do, what do we do in, in that instance? So, you know, I think, again, we have to look at the beliefs and the context in which they occur. So all of our beliefs exist on a continuum. This is kind of the way that I think about it. And and even this is the, the, the kind of example or um, visual that I'll use when I'm trying to explain this in a court, for instance. So every single one of us have beliefs that are not reflective of reality. Even the most rational person out there is going to have some kind of kooky belief. So on the one end of that continuum are odd beliefs that aren't very strongly held and that others may or may not have as well. So things like superstitions would fall on that end of the continuum. And on the other end, we have false, strongly held, highly idiosyncratic beliefs, which we would call delusions. And then we have this whole space in the middle. And some of the things, some of that space in the middle are things that we might refer to as overvalued beliefs. So this is where we would find things like conspiracy theories, cult beliefs, terroristic beliefs. Um, These beliefs tend to be incorrect or at least improbable and very strongly held, but they're not idiosyncratic. There's sizable groups of people who hold these same beliefs. So when we're looking at something like a cult, you know, their beliefs may seem totally out of left field, but they're not considered a delusion because there's a whole group of people that believe this. Now, it can be really difficult to determine where a belief 
falls. And it can also be difficult to determine, you know, what the threshold is for determining when a belief is no longer idiosyncratic enough to be a delusion. So for example, there is something, um, it's a very rare disorder. It's called a shared delusional disorder. And it's also called like a folly ado. Sometimes people have heard of, of that term. And this is mm-hmm. where more than one person holds the same delusion. So generally you find this disorder you know, in a couple or maybe in a family, but you know, what number of believers are required for it to move from a delusion to an overvalued belief? Folly à trois, folly à quatre. <laughs> right, right. There's no specific answer to that question, at least not that I know of. And that's kind of a big deal because, you know, if we're saying that something is a delusion, especially in the context of the criminal justice system, that's a basis for somebody being found incompetent to stand trial. It could be a basis for somebody being found not guilty by reason of insanity. But if it's an overvalued belief, we're on the other side of that line, it's not going to qualify for those for those defenses, right? So it it can be a little bit tricky, you know. I and I don't have the answer. I would love to know. I mean, if if anyone's ever come across a study where they say, "Okay, the answer is 10." 10 people have to believe something. <laughs> that would make my job so much easier. Well, we're going to have a case coming up, aren't we? I mean, the, the January 6th situation, every, a lot of people are in prison because of a strongly held belief in things like a satanic cabal controlling the government. Get, will this get them off? I doubt it. I think, you know, I we were... I think it was your episode that we were listening to last night, and you were you were saying um, the the reptilian redo that fifteen percent <laughs> of people believe that this exists, right? So that's I don't know it's how many whole, people yeah. that is, but it's a lot of people. It's far more than there are Muslims and Jews in the United States. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there you go. That's a perfect example of an overvalued belief. Now, can somebody have an overvalued belief and have a mental illness? Sure. And that just complicates the matter even further. Um, but but it, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's certainly an area of interest for me. And, and you know, I'm going to say one thing that maybe I'll regret saying, but I'm going to just go with it anyway. <laughs> Luke can always edit it out if you regret it later. <laughs> so, you know, the other piece is that we also have to be careful not to pathologize all idiosyncratic beliefs. You know, I'm sure like when Copernicus first said the earth revolved around the sun, you know, people were like, he's delusional. Like (laughs) this guy has a mental illness, right? So just because a belief is different, it doesn't automatically make it pathological. You know, again, we have to look at how holding the belief is affecting the person's life, their ability to function, um, examining that level of distress it's causing the the person, you know, are they so fixated on it that it's causing them to lose relationships where people are like, I can't hear you talk about, you know, the, the sun being the center of, of the universe or of the, the solar system. Again, I can't hear it, you know, um, is it getting them into trouble with the law? Is it causing them to lose their job? You know, that's going to be far more concerning from a mental health perspective than, you know, someone who has a strange belief, but, you know, everyone just says, yeah, that's weird. Uncle Larry, you know, we love him and his kooky ideas, you know, that's, that's different. Um, so anyway, that's that's just another to complicate matters further. <laughs> you know. No, I get it. I mean, I, I could keep going on this for ages, Jessica, because Jesus, after all, is best known for breaking the law. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, which we would now consider to be an immoral set of laws, the Roman Code. Uh, in that, I mean, they were crucifying people left and right. We certainly don't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, it's 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 definitely it's complicated, but that's what makes it fun, right? It's interesting, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess fun in the academic sense. When it gets down to the prison system, I'm sure that it is less fun to be having to make these decisions for people because it has such a strong impact on their lives. Could you guys speak a a little bit about that? This is life and death for some people, or or maybe, you know, uh, a path to happiness versus, uh, uh, you know, never ending cycle in the system. You know, it's um, it's a lot of responsibility. And, you know, I teach forensic psychology uh, to undergrad students. I also have taught in graduate school. And, and one of the things that I tell my students is that you have to be comfortable making these really difficult decisions, decisions that could impact a person forever. And, you know, the way that I, I view it, you know, I take my job very seriously. I'm 
meticulous in my cases. I'm consulting all the time and I do want to get it right, you know, but I'm human. And, and so there has to be an aspect of being willing to acknowledge that sometimes you're going to get it wrong. And, you know, I really try to, for me, look at, this is going to make my job sound so boring, but I'm going to go there anyway. (laughs) I I have to look at like, what does the case law say? What are the legal standards? And really being very careful in applying those to whatever case that I'm considering. Um, One of the luxuries that I have working for the federal government is that I'm hired by the court. So there's not even... um, an unconscious bias to find in one favor, you know, in favor of one side or the other. And, and I feel like that gives me the freedom to be more objective in what I do. Um, but certainly it's, it's something that I think about, you know, I, I don't want to get the decision wrong. Um, but the other piece is that at the end of the day, I'm not making the final decision. You know, I, I'm bring my, I bring my information to the court and it's going to be a judge or jury that decides. And it's not uncommon that I may have an opinion in a case and there may be a, another expert that has an opposite opinion and they may have very valid reasons for doing that. Um, so it's, it's, it is challenging. It's a lot of responsibility and you definitely have to have that personality where you're willing to make those tough calls. Mm-hmm. David, what's your take on this? You know, um, <laughs> I definitely respect that uh, that uh, the work that Jessica does in because of that. You know, when guys come to me, they've already been diagnosed. I don't, I don't, I, my degree does not allow me, you know, um, the ability to diagnose because um, it's not a clinical PhD. Okay, so the way that substance abuse is is looked at, and I I explain this to the guys all the time, you know, um, because there's still this idea of like you know you're an addict. And the, the terminology, um, the term addict is actually used less and less as time goes on in the field because there's really no sort of uh, objective measure for that. Like, okay, you know, suddenly you're an addict, whereas, okay, two, you know, one step ago you were not. And so the, the, the idea always gets back to just like what Jessica was saying, where does this affect other aspects of your life and how does it affect other aspects of your life? And so if somebody has a substance use disorder, we would say it's either, you know, um, uh, mild, moderate, or severe, depending on the, the types of consequences it is causing in, in various aspects of the life. So if it, if it doesn't really harm that person, uh, regardless of how much they're actually using until it starts to have a detrimental effect on, let's say, their health or their finances or their relationships or their work life, that's when we would start to say, okay, this is a substance use disorder that's a little bit more intense. So we would say that's a moderate one or even a severe substance use disorder. So, but for me, and I've had to work with guys who have very, um, rigid sort of belief systems. And that is really, uh, that really is about uh, a lot of times the skill uh, of the clinician and how do you contextualize that within their belief system to make it, uh, to um, to meet them where they are, so to speak. And that's actually one of the harder things to do. I know that that's one of the, been one of the more challenging things for me uh, as a substance abuse counselor is how do I meet this person where they are? Because when they come to you for this kind of help, they're in all different places. And some of them, yeah, they, they come to the table with very rigid sort of uh, belief systems. Um, as long, again, as long as those belief systems aren't causing damaging effects in other aspects of their life, it's sort of something that you have to, all right, well, how do we, you spend time contextualizing, like how do we, take these concepts, these basic sort of CBT concepts and integrate them into this person's worldview. And uh, yeah, it, it, there, it definitely can be challenging at times. So you're trying sure. to get your uh, sort of theoretical viewpoint to interface with whatever belief system they're bringing to you in that room. Correct. Right. So we, you know, the, the big one, of course, is um, the born again Christians. We get a lot of uh, born again types. 
and they're not especially difficult to work with unless the the dogma is incredibly rigid in which case there are you know there will be times when like a, a basic sort of cbt concept doesn't match up exactly as to how they would put it in terms of you know their religious beliefs um but i haven't run into that too often usually CBT and the use of CBT, which is what we use, you know, in the prison system for substance abuse, um, is is open enough and receptive enough um, that you can work with quite a few different um, orientations. And that's, you know, I, again, working within the CBT model, I've been able to use Jungian psychology. I've been able to use, you know, dribs and drabs of the transpersonal theories and, you know, different philosophical uh, beliefs and stuff. And so that's what, that is one good thing about using cognitive behavioral therapy. So when you talk about born again, are you saying that their viewpoint is too rigid? They're too hard on themselves? I not necessarily born against. There are some that do tend to be much more fundamentalist than others. In other words, the the belief system is such that it's it can be very all or nothing. It can be very black and white, good versus mm-hmm. evil types. And a lot of uh, the, of the CBT concepts, um, and this is definitely true for DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, is sitting in the gray area and holding tension between opposing points, you know, between opposing uh, views. And so when we start to talk about, and one of the the Jungian concepts that I like to use a lot is that of the shadow. And, okay, well, there's this idea, you know, in very sort of fundamentalist belief that you vanquish enemies, you, you know, you win or you lose. And it's, well, no, that's not exactly how it works. You know, you have this part of you, at least, you know, Jung posited this, that is always there. This is your shadow dimension, your shadow side. This isn't something that's never going to go away. But what you have to learn how to do is to dance with it. And how do you hold the tension between, you know, this is my shadow dimension. This is my shadow side. I acknowledge it. I honor it. But I set boundaries on it so it never gets to actually, you know, drive the car, so to speak, or run the show. And this is a matter of being able to sit within that gray area, I think, which can be difficult for people who have very rigid sort of belief systems. Like, okay, it's either this way or it's that way. So I have a funny story, and and this will exemplify why David is a much better therapist than I am, why I need to stay doing evaluations. But um, I don't, because I don't really do treatment. I just figure out what's wrong with people and then somebody else fixes them. So I ha- I did uh, sex offender work for, for many, many years. I did uh, treatment with, with mostly men um, who were convicted of sexual offenses. And uh, we did a lot of group therapy. And I once had um, a client who was in my group and he was recently born again. And this is not against anyone who's a born again Christian, but you know, he came into group and he told me, he says, well, I don't need to be here because Jesus has forgiven me. And rather than being so, you know, um, diplomatic as David is, I just said, well, that's great that Jesus forgave you because the criminal justice system hasn't. And you're going to sit here and (laughs) sit in this group and do therapy for the next five years. So, you know, I mean, (laughs) the government has not forgiven you. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I, and I do think that, you know, David's um, approach is probably much better than mine, but, but I think it can, you know, it's challenging sometimes when you're coming up against some of these very rigid beliefs, sometimes you can talk through them, you can, um, you know, give other options, you can give examples of things like dialectics, and you're just not getting there. And sometimes I feel like you kind of just you move forward and you say, that's fine, you can think that you can have that belief. And we're going to do this as well. It's a bit like parenting. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I want yeah. Go ahead. Dave. You know that's that's the example that yeah. No, I was just going to say that's that's uh, that's one of the examples that I use. It's like having two unruly kids in the back seat of your car. You know, you're driving, 
And every now and then you have to, you have to pull the car over, you know, to let the kids out, run around, buy them sodas, let them see the world's biggest prairie dog or, you know, whatever it is, the roadside traction. Then they calm down, they get back, they've expended some energy, they get back in the car. You drive a little ways until you have to do it all over again. And they, they sort of have this release of energy. And this is how you manage them throughout the trip. But at no point do you get out, you know, as the parent and throw the keys at them and say, you know, you drive. And that's, that's that, that, that sort of dance that we do, right? We have to acknowledge and honor the, the fact that the kids are like this and they're always going to be like this. They're kids, you know, and sort of the same thing with the shadow, the shadow dimensions or the, you know, the darkness in, in each of us. I, would I say. love that. It makes it a bit less uh, dark in a way if it's just the kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to end on a sort of upbeat note here uh, and and get you each to reflect on where you'd like to see psychology going next. Wow, that's such a big question. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) In any way, it doesn't, big or small, anything at all. Oh, David, you have to go first. For me, it's it's one of the things that that I really love about transpersonal psychology because one one of the questions that you had emailed us originally was like, what role does religion and the soul play in in modern professional mm-hmm. psychology? And so, a, a lot of what transpersonal psychology is another way that it's described is what what is the psychological you know view like how do we study spirituality from a psychological perspective? And I think that, you know, getting back to the idea of, of religion, religion is such a quintessential and ubiquitous part of our culture, you know, and, you know, of the entire world that how do we start to integrate this uh, more so into the psychology? And um, again, getting back to Wilbur, uh, Ken Wilbur, you know, my one of my favorite philosophers, is sort of looking at and appreciating the unique truths that each of these different religions can bring and in the insight, the psychological insights that it brings, but also these very interesting contemplative cores of a lot of the world's great religions and these spiritual technologies that they bring to the forefront that people have used for millennia to invoke these uh, very transcendent and, um, you know, transcendental experiences. And I would really like to see, I know right now the big one is, of course, transcendental meditation and the mindfulness movement, which has sort of um, been the big thing. I don't know, how long would you say for now? Like at least 20 years, right, Jess? Oh, yeah. 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 And so, you know, and of course the mindfulness movement is a secular way of looking at it, but it has some very profound or can have some very profound spiritual implications to it. And so religion, and this comes from um, religion, religious scholar Huston Smith, and I really like the way he put it, which was religion uh, historically has acted as the vehicle for these spiritual technologies, whether they be things like transcendental meditation or they be, you know, different forms of shamanism, indigenous cultures, um, and the use of um, psychoactive you know, uh, medicinal uh, plants or even um, movement like through through yoga or, you know, dance, these different technologies that have been used and what that brings to the field of psychology and, you know, how it enriches our lives spiritually. That That is something I'm really fascinated with. And I would really like to see, you know, the research sort of continue in that regard. Because it's such a big part, uh, you know, our our spiritual and our religious beliefs. I think that um, it would be really good to see that, to see psychology really start to take a lot of that more seriously. Yeah, you know, I agree. I I think that you know what I would like to see is for psychology to to take these to be more inclusive. I guess would be the best way to put it, and, and to not pathologize things that are not really in line with, you know, I feel like psychology is very dominated by this very white Western viewpoint. Um, And I think that's some of what David was talking about where these other, um, you know, uh, methods and technologies have been marginalized as, you know, being uh, mystical or not really having a place in a, in a scientific field like psychology. And so, you know, really starting to include that. 
taking into account all of the, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of knowledge that went into these practices and really incorporating them and, and including them. Um, the other piece that I would like, the other kind of direction that I would like to see psychology take is I'm really am fascinated with this idea of intelligence, but not just as it applies to like an IQ test, but like all of the different types of intelligence that people have. And there's been, you know, a start to this movement in looking at, you know, like emotional intelligence, um, creative intelligence, but kind of exploring that more and maybe putting some more emphasis on how important those areas are to being a healthy um, human and that it's not just about, you know, well, what is your IQ, but like, how do you interact with other people? How are you successful, um, you know, in in all of the different relationships that you have in your life? So I I think that that would be kind of a, a cool area to see some more development in as well. Interesting. Interesting across the board. I want to thank you both, Dr. Meccano, Dr. Morelos, for an excellent conversation. I really enjoyed this. Oh, it's been great, Rob. Thank you so much for having us. It's We absolutely love your podcast. Um, we would love to have you on at some point to uh, talk about some fun um, occult topics. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I think I our listeners, they would absolutely love <laughs> that it. That would be so, awesome. Thank you so That'd much. Be this has been so much yeah. fun and such a great conversation. The show, again, is Psychology After Dark, and it is a show that the alchemical actors enjoy in our free time, and we encourage you all, dear confessors, to check it out. For I, I feel like that both of you have done an excellent job selling the confessors on your show today. <laughs> you hit so many of our favorite topics, uh, and, and I really appreciate it again. Thank you both. Thanks. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, uh, joined by my my good friend and producer, Luke Kinneman. Goodbye, and thank you both. (laughs) We'll check you next time here on Occult Confessions.